0: all right Good good morning let's go ahead and pray lord thank you for this opportunity to gather here help me now give me wisdom from heaven give us understanding of your word, and Lord, give us an understanding of who you are this morning. Lord, lift up those that are downtrodden, heal the brokenhearted. Let us see your care for us in this lesson now. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, take your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 11. John chapter 11, verse number 1, and the Bible says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. I think that we're all just about familiar with the story of Lazarus' sickness, his death, and subsequent miracle that the Lord performs in that. And I think it's just about one of the most profound miracles that Jesus performed during his entire ministry. Um, even the widow Nain's son and the the Jairus' daughter, they were just recently dead, and so... Um, they had not been buried yet and, and all of that, but we know that Lazarus was four days dead. Decomposition had already set in. His body had already grown stiff and cold, and we've seen that if you've been through by the casket, maybe even of a loved one or a friend or mother or father or a son or a daughter. You've seen that stiffness that sets in when the Spirit leaves the body. You can see, you can tell, you can feel the absence of life. In four days, Lazarus is this way. So I think that makes this one of the most profound miracles that Jesus performs in His ministry. And His miracles were demonstrations of His deity, but they were not only that, but they were demonstrations of His compassion. They were demonstrations of His care for His creatures. At the wedding, John chapter 2, we're just going to run through these miracles this morning. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, we see at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he cares for their celebration. He's compassionate over the merriment of, of the party. That the, This is a big thing in the culture. That they have this large celebration of this covenant between this man and this woman. And they make merry. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're, they're excited, they're rejoicing, and they're celebrating. But the festivities are, are running dry as the as the, the, the beverages dry up and they're gone and some of y'all are looking at me funny. This is not an endorsement of alcohol by any means. But this is important in the culture and so Jesus, in spite of his response to his mother, look at that. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. His mother saith unto the servants, excuse me, um, let's see, verse number 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. They say, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Jesus' whole point right here is it's not time to start this just yet. It's not time for this just yet. And, and I think to myself, he's omniscient, he's, he's omnipotent, he's all of these things, but he lays aside his divine prerogatives, and so he interacts with his creation, and there are times in which he knows things directly, and there are other times in which it seems like he, by his own will, abstains having the knowledge of something. And right now, I don't know what the case is, but He just says directly unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. This is not the time. This is not the time. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three uh, firkins apiece. And it's as if Jesus looks at these water pots, and He considers the, the wedding guests, and He thinks about the fact that a wedding is a celebration... or the celebration of a wedding is, is, is a celebration of a covenant, and it's almost in my mind, this is purely conjecture, but as if he realizes the covenant celebration that will take place in eternity when his bride comes and meets him there and we have the wedding supper. And, he, and, and maybe he's considering the rejoicing that will take place in that moment, and the celebration that will take place there, and all of the joy of that. And he's like, he's like let's, just, let's just have that here for a moment. Let's have a glimpse of that here for a moment. I don't know, that's conjecture. There, there, there's all kinds of reasons why he might do this, but two of the reasons that we know that he did this was, number one, because he wanted to demonstrate his divinity... And number two, he wanted to demonstrate his compassion and his care. John chapter 4 at Galilee, he cared for the unbelieving Galileans. Look at John four thirty nine. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. This is the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritans were, were not accepted by the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews. But the Samaritans, who Jesus had just said to the woman that you know not what you worship, you don't even understand who God is, really. You don't have a clear understanding of who God is, for the Jews will teach you that. And this Samaritan woman, what does she, what does she demonstrate? What does she show towards Jesus? She shows faith in His singular miracle of telling her all that she had done. And it wasn't really all that she had done, but he, he told her enough that she knew, that He knew all that she had done. And what does it say? And many of the Samaritans, not just her, but many of the other Samaritans in that, of that city, believed on Him for the saying of the woman which testified. But look at the hearts of His own people. Verse 43 of John chapter 4. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. And it's almost as if he is prophesying about what is to come. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Verse 45. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him. The Samaritan woman was not in a very receptive mood. She's wondering, why are you, being a Jew, even talking to me, a Samaritan? I don't understand what this whole thing is about. Can, can, you know, can I just collect my water alone? But the Galileans, they received Him. Note this. Why? Having seen all the things that He did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. They were operating on what they saw, but they were not so concerned with what they could hear. Look at Matthew thirteen, fifty four. Matthew thirteen, verse fifty four. He had just finished the parables. And when he was come into his own country, verse 54, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And note what it says here, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Look back at verse chapter number 12, in verse 38. Now I want you to consider this. He taught in their synagogues, they were astonished. They were they were they were uh how do you, they were flabbergasted at what he was saying. They were in awe, their their jaws were dropped. They were just perplexed and, and 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 this was an amazing thing for them to see. We we're not perplexed or amazed or astonished by much these days. Think of this. I I mean just a little side note here. We are so consumed with information that we don't get astonished at things hardly ever. We have, we have, we have developed a complacency to the beauty of what God has provided for us. My mom, the, the other day I was in there talking with her and she had the television on and um, she was watching the Waltons. And uh, some of y'all know who the Waltons are, and some of you don't. That's okay. I like the Waltons all right. They're they're pretty cool. John Boy is in in the general store, and they've got all these trinkets in the general store. And he's wanting to buy a gift for someone, maybe his mother or somebody, or his his, his grandmother or something like that. And he says, find me a gift that will meet this price. And they find him a gift, and he gets the gift, and then he goes to the counter and he says, look at these. And and what is he looking at? Flowers. A beautiful bouquet of yellow flowers. I don't know what they were, but they were beautiful. And they were, they were really beautiful. I mean, I looked at him when he said, look at these, look at how beautiful they are. Like, I considered that. And I'm like, dude, you live on a mountain. There's meadows everywhere. Don't you have flowers everywhere? And the in the clerk in the story says it took me two seasons to get them this to, to to be of this this um this beauty of this of this stature. Two seasons of of tending to these flowers to get them to look like this. Uh, that's perennials, right? Or annuals or something. Annuals, right? So he kept going after it, and after it, and after it, and he put labor into it, and all of these things in the shop that, that, would, that would really just kind of catch your attention because of the, the craftsmanship and, and all of that, but the thing that they pointed out as being beautiful in the show was the thing that God had made. I'm not saying that the Waltons just love Jesus and all that, but what I'm saying is that they, they, made, they made a point to me, and it's kind of ingrained in me. We are so unastonished by God's creation and unastonished by God's words Because we are so filled with things that are taking up the space in our mind that do not allow us to consider the depth and breadth and beauty of God's creation and of God's law. Of the gospel. Of the epistles. Of the revelation. Of the law and the prophets and the writings. At least... They were astonished. They were astonished for the wrong reason and their reaction was wrong. But at least they were astonished. But we are so consumed, we we find it hard to even take our eyes away and even consider anything in our lives. Our children are passing us by, our grandchildren are passing us by as we look and we zone out and we cannot even draw ourselves away. Woe is me sometimes. Don't throw anything at me. I think it's a good thing if you all take your telephones and they tell you how many hours you've been on them. That's one of the best things about a cell phone. It tells you how many hours you've been, your screen time. All right, I'm getting up. Lord help us. The Samaritans. They believe the testimony of one woman and hear Jesus standing before them astonishes them with His words and His wisdom and His learning and what do they do? What is their reaction? They're offended in Him. But there in John chapter number 5, excuse me, John chapter number 4, think about that. John chapter 4 and 43 Two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. And and I don't know. I didn't do the study out, but maybe this is the same time. But he's there where where the where the wedding took place. They've already seen one miracle. The water turned to wine. And that, that wasn't a hidden miracle. The master of ceremonies made a big fuss about it. They already know that he can do works. Mighty works, but when they hear his words, they're offended at him. They're offended in him. They don't like this. Well, we're okay if you turn our water into wine, and if you heal some sick folks down at at, at the feast in Jerusalem, like we are totally happy for that. But do not upset our theology. They don't like that. They were becoming like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, 38. We didn't get to that, but I'll just run through it. You don't have to turn there. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from Thee. He had been teaching in their synagogues, in the temple, and all that. We would see a sign from Thee. And Jesus answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. But in Galilee, even in their unbelief... Because they were not so hardened yet. They were offended in him, and he could not do many mighty works there, but he did some. He showed compassion, even in spite of their unbelief, and he healed the son of the nobleman. He showed compassion where there was only a reception based upon his acts, where his words were of no use to them, and he heals the nobleman's son. Isn't that how we get with God? Sometimes we would see a miracle, but we won't hear from Him. Or we would hear from Him, but we won't open His Word. This past month, God, show me something, please. Begging God. And and I feel the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. Just open my Word. Open the Bible. I'll show you something. God, I need a miracle and I won't be satisfied until I have one. Has He not already raised you from the dead? What a miracle that was, right? John chapter chapter 5. He has compassion and care for the hopeless. John chapter 5. Now Jesus had gone to Jerusalem and there was a man who laid at the pool of Bethesda. Day and night he lays there waiting for the troubling of the water so that he might be healed. I want you to get a picture of this scene in your mind. It's got five porches there. And all these blind and halt and lame people are laying around. And they're just there day and night waiting for What? Troubling of the water, for the angel to come down and trouble the water, that the first one that steps in might be healed. And you can imagine that anybody who goes to this pool has hope. They have gone there with a great sense of hope. They're like, okay, here we go. I'm coming. I'm showing up. I'm here. I'm going to sit here until the water's troubled, and then I am going to step into that water. And i 'm going to get healed, and it can happen. but this man, this man he's he's got to begin to feel just like a face in the crowd, just like another broken person lying on the ground waiting for water to be troubled he's got to feel like um you know, I started out in a good spot. Maybe he starts out real close and, and I'm in a good spot and, and and the water gets troubled and everybody rushes in, but but by the time I'm able to crawl myself back to my spot, somebody's already taken it and I've got to get farther away maybe. Maybe I'm stuck getting pushed back. Farther away from the pool every time that I make an attempt to get in I get farther away from the healing Every time that I put forth effort of my own to heal myself I I just I just mess up and I get and I lose my spot in line and you know We know what that's like right we go to the grocery store and and we're like we're standing in line And it's not moving and we see another one that's short over there and we go over there But they flick the light off and oh just our world is falling apart, right? But this man is there and he's broken and he's lying there and he's just I mean he's suffering. Kind of puts our line to shame. But maybe you're in a line like that right now. You're like this man, he's broken and you're you're coming to church and you're saying, "God, I need you to do something for me here. I am showing up. I'm ready to step out in faith. I'm 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 looking for you." That's good. He had hope. But I can only imagine that that hope seemed to fade because time and time again when the water was troubled, He did not make it in. Seems like he was destined to live out his days, only growing weaker and weaker by the moment, being pushed farther and farther away from the edge of the pool so that his real chance of healing was not even a dream in his heart anymore. Then in his pit of hopelessness, Jesus walks up. Let's look at this. John chapter 5 and verse 5, And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knowing that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? I can only imagine what Jesus looked like when he spoke to him. And I've seen the movies and I've seen the, the dramas depicting this scene. You all have seen that, right? And there's something about it. They're usually, they portray Jesus, Jesus as this stoic, like, just chest out, like, you know. Maybe that's not how all of them do it, but I've seen something where he's just like a matter of fact. There is no emotion behind what he's saying, really. Or any emotion that's there, it just seems surface level. But my Bible tells me that His intention in the Incarnation was so that He might be able to be made a perfect High Priest who understands our troubles. So as I see Jesus interacting in all of these instances, all that I can imagine about my Lord is that He is at this very moment absorbing all of the emotions and the feelings and the cares and the sorrows of the people around him at that very instant so that he can be a perfect performing high priest. He did not come to earth to kind of operate as a robot, but to dive into the very feelings of our uh, infirmities, to bear those so that the chastisement of our peace is upon Him, so that our sorrow, so that our pain, our suffering, our sickness, He bears all of that. We so often think about Him as bearing our sins, and that is exactly right. He bears our sins, but He bears our emotions, our groanings, our feelings on the cross. Some of you haven't felt anything for a long time, and some of you live in feelings. Some of you feel so dry. Sometimes we get that way. I've been so dry before where it was like I couldn't even, I couldn't feel the touch of another person, let alone the hand of God reaching down and touching me. And sometimes I'm so overwhelmed with emotions and feelings that I can't even, I can't even compartmentalize anything in my life and everything seems to be in disarray and there's, there's, there's nothing I can do. Are you in one of those two positions today? Jesus bore that. Are you so overwhelmed by your emotions that you cannot even, you can't even handle, you can't even, you're not fit for daily life? Jesus bore that. Your brokenness, he bore it. Whether you are broken because you have tears that will not stop flowing, like the psalmist says, and, and, and your 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 pillow becomes like a river, or whether you are broken to the point where tears will not flow. He bore that. I imagine that Jesus stood over him with, with a heart that was swollen and, and weeping. And that he looks at him and he says, Wilt thou be made whole? And this man's response demonstrates his hopelessness. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. What am I going to do? What do you mean, well, I've, I've been trying? Do you feel his emotion in that? Do you feel his broken heart? When's the last time your heart was broken like that, that you needed God, you needed something, and you couldn't get to it? But he's a perfect high priest. He bore even that. The feeling of the inability to to get to where you need to be. You say, that's not my Jesus. Well, that's fine. If your Jesus is some stoic who never really dealt with emotions and handled suffering and handled betrayal, obviously we've been reading different Bibles. God does not look at our emotions as useless vestiges of the old man, but as a part of His redemptive plan. He wants us to feel deeply our pain and our losses and our sorrows He doesn't want us to just kind of brush it off. Why? Because He is using all of that to make our pursuit of Him that much more wonderful. Even as He endured these same temptations. Because He endured them, what can we do? We can, we can loudly, we can proudly, we can excitedly say, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, mercy for my situation, mercy for your situation and your situation. and your." We can find mercy that is relevant to all of us there and find grace, grace for you, gra- grace for you, grace for me to help in time of need. The treasure of His grace and mercy are of little value without our trials, which draw us to the throne of grace. Do you understand that? Did you catch that? The treasures of His grace and mercy are of little value without our trials, which draw us to His throne of grace. There are times when we are like the man at the pool of Bethesda and we cannot get in the water. There are times when we are without hope. When our life seems so overwhelming. And Paul calls it a light affliction, but it doesn't feel that way in the moment. How does God treat us in those times? Your friends may despise you. They may tell you to um, man up. They may tell you to toughen up, but Jesus asks one simple question. Wilt thou be made whole? He comes to you. Wilt thou be made whole? He doesn't punish us for our emotions. There's a song, and, and I've just been worshiping God and praising God for His care for me, as I've been listening to this for the past few weeks. And the songwriter says this, he says, There's nothing new under the sun. Questions we have have been said and done. Fully God and man, he felt it all, all, all. Highest king, but still he's low enough to meet us where we are. I found a friend in the high priest who's not out of touch with reality. He was a man tempted like me So I won't feel guilty. He gives me space to be what He made me to be. He understands. He was alone, left by His friends, and foxes have holes. He had nowhere to go, no place to lay His head. So if anyone knows, He understands. The pain you feel inside, Inside the tears that you cry at night. I know you want to hide, I know you want to run away, but He understands. Psalm 89.1, this is one of the few psalms of Ethan, the Ezrite. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known Thy faithfulness to all generations. Jesus is not a first century figure. He is the eternal God manifest in flesh, and He came that He might understand our every care. When He says, cast all your care upon Him, He didn't mean leave some to the side that maybe He didn't feel, maybe He didn't go through. I understand that there are issues in our lives that we know that Jesus did not suffer through. We know that Jesus did not uh, go through a divorce. We know that Jesus did not go through a a situation in life where they were sexually promiscuous and they damaged even their own soul. We know that there were plenty of things that Jesus did not actually physically go through, but He understands the emotions of it all because He felt it all when He healed the women who were suffering because they had gone through these situations, when He healed others who were suffering because they had gone through these situations. what He felt all of that... He understands. We'll just kind of speed through this because we're running out of time. His care for the thousands as He feeds them fish and loaves. His care for the blind man whose affliction, just like mine and yours, finds its meaning in the glory of Jesus Christ. John 9.3, He said, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. And now we're going to get to John 11. That's where we started. We're going to finish up here. John 11. This is Lazarus, who Jesus loved. He's sick. Now I want you to consider this: Jesus will be crucified. He knows this. Soon to be all but fully rejected by his own disciples, the people will be given the opportunity to quench their blood th- their bloodlust and their bloodthirst by exchanging him for Barabbas. It seems as though time is there, but time is running out. But it will not matter because he is not like the idols of the nation. The idols of the nation, you knock them over and they don't get back up. The prophet mocking the idols of the nation says, Where are they at? They neither speak nor listen. But Jesus, he is God of heaven and in earth and His plan is the salvation of sinners. And so Mary and Martha send word to Him, and they are broken, and I'm sure the messenger is broken, as He says, The Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick, in verse 3. Now, I want to note this contrast here, because this is going to flesh out what we've been talking about here, that Jesus understands our difficulties he is not this kind of um, ethereal figure who just walks around with a, with, with a bland look on his face. But he wept, and he moaned, and he rejoiced, and, and I'm sure he had some of the biggest laughing fits that you ever saw. He experienced all that there is to experience in the heights and depths of emotions in life. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sure, the rejoicing of the wedding party. Uh, all of this he experiences... But he is God manifest in flesh. Look at this. Note this contrast here. Verse 4 When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. What does Jesus have? He's got perfect theology, he has perfect theology. He has perfect knowledge. He knows that the sickness is not unto death. He knows that this sickness is not what is bringing Lazarus to the tomb. To the grave. It is no, Do you understand what he's saying here? It is not the sickness that is bringing him to death. You say, well, God doesn't operate like that. Do you remember David, King David? David messed up. And he had Bathsheba. And they conceived a child. And God strikes the child with sickness. God did that. Why? In His perfect plan. He was working out His glory and the good of His people. Where's that child at? David knows. He cannot come to me, but I can go to Him. He understands. All this stuff is not happening in your life by chance. He's working this out. You say, you keep getting back to this. You keep getting back to this whole point because there are people in our church that are broken. And they need to know, you need to know that Jesus understands. You're not out in the dark, you're not standing alone in the rain. He's in the dark with you. You're in the rain, He's there with you. You're at the graveside, He's there with you. You're weeping over a loved one, He's there with you. You're laid up with cancer, He's there with you. But He has perfect theology in all of this. And this is just a beautiful picture of how we can have good theology and good tears. We're going to to get through this quickly here. This sickness is not in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. He is as bold as Abraham, carrying Isaac up to the Mount of Sacrifice, saying, The lad and I will return. Abraham wasn't kidding, he believed God. The question of Lazarus' resurrection is not in any of Jesus' thoughts. He's not sitting there thinking, "Well, will will Lazarus live again?" No, Jesus knows. He has time and time again been able to heal the afflicted, and he knows the end of all things, even the sorrows and cares and hurt in our life. He knows all of that. He has perfect theology. Look at verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Perfect theology. I'm going to show you why you need to believe. Verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Perfect theology. Martha's theology ain't too bad either. She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus saith unto her, perfect theology, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Perfect theology. Verse 30, now Jesus was not yet coming to the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. I want, I want, to, I want to show you a principle here. When Moses died, the people of Israel wept for thirty days. When somebody dies, you don't tell somebody to get over it. Oh, and everything's going to be all right. You go and weep and mourn with them for their period of mourning. jesus perfect knowledge perfect theology and he says lazarus uh, lazarus will live again he is going to rise from the dead Uh, let me go and show you this is all for the glory of god and the glorification of the son perfect theology and in the midst of all of that perfect theology he does not interrupt their tears and say boo-hoo y'all need to get over it because look what the end's going to be When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. My Master's been troubled over my sorrow. My Master's been troubled over my tears. He's been groaning in the Spirit over my tears, over your tears, over your tears. Do you know why? Because He understands. And said... He didn't say, listen, I'm going to bring him back from the dead. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, on his way there, he gets there and he's standing there at the grave. In John eleven thirty-five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, demonstrates the depths of compassion of the One who died for your sins on Calvary's cross, Jesus wept. When He knew that He would triumph in death on the cross and put death to an open shame in the principalities and powers, and He would uh, subvert them and lay them down, this same One who would triumph over death, He does not erase the emotions of the situation. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. He knows Lazarus will rise. He's got perfect theology and he has perfect tears. Do you have tears today? He understands those tears. Sorrow, he understands your sorrow. He bore it. He bore all of it. We were talking about the atonement recently. His atonement is so perfect and complete that every single minute detail of your life, he understands, not just in a generic sense, but in a particular sense. He feels, he felt it all and so he has been made our perfect high priest will you bring your care to him today verse 43 and when he had when he thus had spoken he cried with a loud voice he was glorifying god and praying to god he said uh He said unto Martha, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. He didn't tell her, stop crying. He just said, didn't I tell you? Just believe. Your tears are okay, but believe in your tears. Believe through your tears. Then they took away the stone from the place. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Look at his advocacy. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He is the advocate of Lazarus. He's raised you from the dead if you are born again. He is your advocate. He understands all of your cares. Trust in him. Lean on him. His perfect theology does not preclude him from perfect tears. Lazarus. This is the end of all of our sorrows. One day, one day He's going to say your name if you're born again. And whether you're sitting on a church pew, or in a hospital dying of cancer, or at a graveside, or if you're in the grave, you're going to go up. That's the end, but He does not despise our tears till we get there. Church, we need to love those that are afflicted, those that are in sorrows. We need to bear them up. They hide, and they're in secret. And we don't need to expose them or hunt them out, but we need to help them to understand that it is okay that they come down to this altar and they pour out rivers of water, that we will come and pour out rivers of water with them. Why? Because that will make it better? No, because that's what we're called to do. Weep with those that weep. Let us love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you that you've glorified yourself through your word. God, I pray that you would use what is said now. God, that it will not be forgotten. Lord, we get home and we get to thinking about football or food and all of these things, but God, let our hearts meditate on this, that we would consider Your care for us, and we would consider the care we ought to demonstrate because of that perfect care, the care we ought to demonstrate for our loved and cherished church family. God, let, you, let Your name be glorified now. Let Jesus be lifted up, the blood uh, magnified in this place as the preaching of the Word comes to follow. Lord, let our hearts be full of rejoicing in the singing that we understand that we are singing not to a God who is abstract, but to a God who is absolute and present. We love You and we thank You, Father. We ask it all now in Christ's name. Amen.